Welcome to Making of a Historian, a podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. Today we're going to be continuing our mini-series on social life in the Anthropocene, which is kind of a dry run of a lecture course that I might teach if I, you know, pass my orals and graduate and end up in a university. The idea behind the course is that we look at some of the cultural and social changes of the 18th and 19th century, not through the usual economic and political lenses, but instead through lenses that take into account the environment as a key causal factor. If you haven't listened from the beginning, I encourage you to, not because you're going to be lost. Uh, everything kind of assumes the same amount of vague you know, general knowledge about European history, but because ideally this class has an organic hold to it. It has a progression that I hope uh, coheres together. To that extent that it does cohere together, it will make more sense to listen uh, in order. This episode is probably going to be a little bit more first drafty than some of the other episodes because I'm still trying to arrange exactly the argument and lens that I'm looking through. We might end up redoing it in a week or two when I have a bit more time to think. This episode is on something I'm calling vistas, on images of the world, on how these changes to people's relationship to the environment is reflected in the way that they see the world in which they live. And like all of these episodes, this is divided into two parts. The first, I'm going to be dealing with the outside. So we're going to be dealing with uh, ideas of country, of nature, and of tourism. Then we're going to shift and look at changing attitudes towards the city itself. All throughout this, I want just to point out two things, um, and more so that you can see some of the thinking that goes into how I'm trying to frame this. The first thing is that it's really easy to frame all of these changes as a complete result of the Industrial Revolution. This is a story that you see repeated again and again, and it's, I think, probably pretty true about the social and economic changes of the Industrial Revolution changing everything. But even though this is really compelling and in some ways a really easy answer, I want to resist it as much as I can because the Industrial Revolution was slow, the Industrial Revolution was often incomplete, and it seems like pointing a finger to the Industrial Revolution simply begins the explanation that we need to make or the description that we need to make. Yes, things changed, but how and why? And what does that tell us about the world now? So that's going to be, you know, the thing I wrestle against. I could very easily do this episode as a uh, industrial revolution changes everything, um, you know, narrative. But I don't want to. I want to do this more as something that takes into account more complicated factors like natural environment, the slow place, pace of change, political, social, gender, all those things that we think actually makes our history interesting. The second uh, caveat that I want to uh, lay out here is that there's a big movement that's happening, and that's clear. It's clear that there's something that's changing and it's affecting the way that people see things. However, it seems like with every single thing that we might possibly take into account, 
there is an increasing polarity of what people think. So the city can be seen as a you know, triumph of civilization, as the place where people go to get finished, as the place where social life happens, the palace of art and literature and seats of government. And at the same time, it also could be seen as a degenerate whole, as London is called a great when, that is an open weeping sore, a place of death and disease where culture goes to die. The country can be a refreshing trip back in time, a healthful land of bucolic maidens and beer and beef, a place that, unlike the city, has traditional culture, real culture, the thing that we are losing. And it can also be a backwards place of ignorance, pigs rutting in the, in the, in the ground, and, you know, small-minded uh, people. Industry, similarly, the whole idea of industry can be seen as something that shows the health and ingenuity of the nation. Remember when we talked about coal smoke, uh, industrialists in the great argument about uh, coal smoke abatement made the suggestion that we should be proud of coal smoke, that when we see the factories spewing out smoke, we should be happy because that smoke stood in for economic development. And in the 18th century, when there wasn't as much concern about humans' impact on the natural world, people could find great beauty in what we now think of as grim industrial areas. Check out the painting Colebrookdale at Night, uh, which we've mentioned before. And even in the 19th century, people found the railways to be uh, exciting and often beautiful. And of course, people also found the railways and the factories and the steam engines deeply troubling and disturbing that would destroy the health not only of the individual, but also of the race. But nature itself is not immune from the problems that we've just described of being you know, split apart. Nature could be something that, like the country, was a place of respite, a place where we went to get renewed. But it was also under threat. It was something that could be colonized or, you know, destroyed by uh, the, you know, clumsy hands of humans. And it also could be something ugly and disordered, something that needs to be improved, something that we don't like. So uh, let's now get into the heart of it. Uh, and I'm going to go thematically, dealing first with the country, then with uh, the natural world, then to zoom out to tourism, and then to talk about the city, finally. So when people described going to the countryside, they described stepping back in time. The countryside was a reservoir of old traditional practices. It was a place where people did things like they used to. At some level, we can describe this as, you know, a process of the massive migration from the country to the cities. As the 18th and 19th century roll on, an increasingly smaller and smaller number of people live in rural areas. And of those people, an increasing smaller number of people actually work in agriculture. There's a sense of going there and being reunited with something that is lost. That could be because of something that is uh, particularly modern. Our, you know, 
disjunction from the ways that are the things that we use and eat are made. In the modern world, we get food from a supermarket, we buy uh, consumer goods from uh, big box stores. Uh, I just read a fascinating article on the new Intel microchip and how it's made. And one of the fascinating things is these, these chips, which power everything in our lives, are made completely by robots, encased in the ceramic that most people don't see into. You do not see the technology that powers the world that we all know, now know. And then in the 18th and 19th century, you get this sense increasingly growing to people, that they're being disconnected from the things that matter. And the country is a place where you can get reconnected. We might see this clearly in changes of the meaning of the word nostalgia. Nostalgia started off in the uh, 18th century as a medical condition that uh, simply meant a longing for home. It could, really interestingly, be fatal. And in the Civil War, the American Civil War, there were lots of people who died from homesickness. Not from bullet rooms, from homesickness. Uh, originally, people thought that it was confined to the Swiss, that it was a particularly Swiss feeling to leave your home and have a you know, pathological desire to go back to it. But in the 19th century, particularly the second half of the 19th century, the feeling of nostalgia changed, not just from being a yearning for a home that you can return to, but instead to yearning for a past time when you were at home. And maybe this move is a little subtle, but I want to show it with an example. In the 18th century, people who went to America, migrants, might write home with nostalgic sentiments, saying, I wish I could be back home with you. The point is, they could be back home if they went across the ocean again. However, in the 19th century, there's an increasing sense in which the back home that we yearn for no longer exists, that it too has been swept away by time. Now that is perhaps a way in which we can see the cultural effects of the massive migrations of the 19th century, that this creation of the feeling of nostalgia is something in which we're yearning for a lost time is really actually accurately portraying big changes in the way that places uh, moved, uh, in the way that dem demography shifted. But it also led to strange acts of tourism. In America in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century, there was a movement called Hometown Days, where uh, small towns would welcome back native sons for a period of three or four days for these urban festivals where they would, you know, go back to their old homes, eat traditional food, hang out with one another. Think like a college reunion, only the college is a whole city. And this is, of course, a great grist for the historical mill because not only does it show us uh, really concretely this feeling of nostalgia, but it also shows us that, it ha that these cities have to be recreated, and they're recreated from the very technology that destroys them in the first place. 
railroads, increase communication, increase transportation, increase buying power. To get people to these hometown days, they needed to have money, enough to take time off work, they needed to be able to drive and take trains so that they could cross the vast distances, and they needed to be locked into communication networks that could spread news of the fact that you're going to make up an urban festival that's never been held before. And it may be in part to push against the narrative of the Industrial Revolution changed everything. I want to emphasize that this idea of the country being a reservoir of traditional practices that are under threat is has a long provenance. In the 18th century, you have people going out into the countryside and starting to take note of rural customs that they believe are quaint, ancient, perhaps even a little bit pagan, and importantly, under threat, which is why you need people going out there to record them to do it. Now, let's move on to discuss nature, because uh, alongside the country, the figure of nature is also changing. We could look at this in a bunch of different ways. Uh, there are, for example, in ecology, um, according to David Worcester, um, different frames of ecological understanding, one of which is pastoralist, which uh, you can think of this as uh, perhaps like Thoreau, going out into the wilderness, seeing yourself as a piece of a beautiful self-regulating system where everything has its place and everything is well-ordered, and the person is just one person among many different things. And then there's also a view which he describes as imperialist, and for this we can see Carl Linnaeus. The imperialist view sees nature as organized for humanity's benefit, and humans, through understanding it, uh, nature and imposing their will on nature, can get more benefit from it. We might be able to compare these two views, the pastoralist and the uh, imperialist, by uh, thinking about different ways that people view class at this time, too. The pastoralist is more like a person who views class hierarchically as a great chain of being, in which people are great, and some people are greater than others, but everybody from high to low is part of one big organic community. The view of the imperialists, however, is more like people who see class in a far more confrontational mode, who see classes us against them. Us, in this case with ecology, are humans, and them is everybody else. Another way that we might be able to see nature changing is through the idea of the sublime. Now, the sublime might be a super academic emotion. I, I had never heard of it before I went to college and had to do an aesthetics course, and I read Kant and Burke on the sublime. So maybe it is like a, a, an emotion that academics feel more than other people. But the idea is, is that the sublime is a feeling that you get when you see something, usually out in nature, that is amazing, that takes your breath away by showing you the power of the world and the limitations of the individual. Think about these things as, you know, big mountains, raging waterfalls, uh, uh, mountain lions, and stuff like that. 18th century travelers experienced the sublime by walking around alpine peaks. If you want to just see this for yourself, Google the artist 
Caspar Friedrich, and you will see these uh, kind of romantic paintings of lonely men out in the wilderness contemplating fog and mountains. Um, and that's the idea of the sublime. It is this solo experience of nature that through the sheer power of nature shows us as individuals our space within the big order. But as the 18th century turned to the 19th century, this natural sublime started to fall out of fashion. People started to see other things as majestic, not just canyons and waterfalls, but things that humans make. The works of man began to outshine the natural environment, and the sublime shifted from the natural world to the industrial world. In the 19th century, railway tunnels, great works of engineering, and massive steam engines were often considered sublime, and often things that people went to to experience an emotional connection. Nature became something that humans could influence, a place that was arranged against the city, against the works of man, something that was possibly under threat. You went there for renewal, to be connected with the past and your real self, to get away from the potentially crushing hideousness of society. One solution of uh, dealing with this problem of society was to leave. In the 18th century, the big thing was the Grand Tour, where well-heeled British men went off with purses full of gold to travel south down through France and maybe Germany and go to Italy, where they would learn languages, maybe have a mistress or two, buy antiques, get a taste for fine French wine and Italian vistas and villas, and then come back to England a couple years later cultured and finished in a way that life in England could never finish a gentleman. But as travel became easier, the Grand Tour was opened up to more and more people, not just the well-heeled, but also the bourgeois. And in the 19th century, when we get the steamship railway combo to working class people as well. When Mary Shelley and uh, Byron and all of those you know, drunkards were hanging out in Switzerland in 1816, about to write Frankenstein and invent Dracula, they were trailblazers of uh, bourgeois and bohemian Britons going off to Europe to feel cool. The British touristic colonization of Europe uh, is today really well known. If you go traveling around Spain uh, or islands in the Mediterranean, you'll sometimes bump into British tourist colonies, which are kind of disgusting things. Uh, you know, my experience of them was in an all-inclusive resort in Turkey, where I met a incredibly drunkard British man who did not seem to do anything else on his holiday but eat and drink. It was really weird. But this British touristic colonization of Europe started in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, one of the, the big moments was in the 1860s when Nice and the French Riviera became a convenient site for British tourists. Convenient because they didn't need to cross the Alps into their preferred destination, which was Italy. 
Uh, by the 1860s, Nice had a Rue Anglais, and not only did they have hotels that served English people, but also doctors and clergy and resident people whose job it was to cater to the English tourist trade. One of the big stories of 19th century English tourism, of course, is the seaside. Uh, this was originally done for health. When you want to know why we go to the seaside, it's because 19th century people thought that the ocean was healthy. It was healthy for two reasons. First, there was sunshine. Remember, at this time in Britain, cities were really smoky, and so it was hard to get sun. Sunshine, according to 19th century British medical orthodoxy, was a good disinfectant. So if you were suffering from crippling modern chronic diseases like tuberculosis, and you needed just a general cleanse of your system, you needed to go out and get some sun. Not for the vitamin D like they say today, but instead so that it could beat off against infection. People went to the coastline to also get another input that was good for health, ozone. Today we know ozone uh, as something that's highly poisonous and also uh, is frequently used in helping fight back against mold and fungus. But in the 19th century, people knew that ozone cleaned stuff, and they knew that places like oceans had higher ozone concentrations in cities. They identified this and thought, well, one of the city reasons that cities might be unhealthy is that they have low ozone concentrations. So people went to the seaside to get a good dose of ozone and sunshine. And because of the spread of railways, these seaside spas went from being elite destinations to middle-class destinations in the 18th century to, in the 19th century, being working-class places. And these working-class tourists, holiday-makers, day-trippers, started to push out the more well-heeled. And so you got places like Brighton or uh, other seaside resorts getting increasingly working class in character. And indeed, these annual journeys to the seaside became a marked piece of working class culture in the late 19th century. Not only did people use it as part of the you know, patriarchal uh, uh, benefits of living in a working class home, but it became a site of contention about working conditions. Working people, increasingly demanded their week off holiday so that they could take a trip with their families to the seaside, paid if they could get it. And we can see here the development through the spread of tourism because of the greater availability of communication and transports of a very modern phenomenon. That is the tourist going out someplace and trying to get off the beaten track. When my girlfriend and I were in Vietnam just a couple weeks ago, uh, and I asked my girlfriend what she wanted to do, she summed it up like this. She said, I don't want to do anything too touristy. And that's something you hear again and again from tourists. We do not want to be a member of the mob. But of course we are. But this urge to separate out this mobness of tourism is a way of us trying to recapture the original kind of a feeling of high status that 18th century grand tourists got. Tourism used to be something that only the rich could do. But with the mass, it's now kind of degraded. 
And so if we want to reclaim that status, we have to insist on what makes us individuals. When the railways were expanding uh, to the north of England and Scotland, and uh, areas of natural beauty like the Lake District became potentially open for day trippers, the poet William Wordsworth and uh, the writer uh, uh, Ruskin, whose name I can't remember for some reason, um, complained that the extension of the railway would destroy the natural beauty of these areas. Not simply because it would have some ecological damage, but you would get the unwashed masses there who could easily get there and thus not appreciate the beauty. Instead of walking around and wandering and making their own path through the wilderness, they would take the railway up on one particular route and do a certain set of things that they'd read about in their guidebook and then go back down in the same route. If you've looked at Tyler Cowen's recent work on complacency, you see the same kind of argument. Kids these days just uh, do things in the same ruts as everybody else does. They don't follow the beat of their own drummer. Now let's move on to talk about the final piece of the puzzle, the urban landscape. So the city has always been a spectacle. It's always been a perpetual fair of variety and of uh, you know crazy stuff that people can't see anywhere else. By walking the city, the urban walker is able to feast on this spectacle. We have to imagine him, and I want to just emphasize this, uh, as white, male, and upper class, well-heeled, uh, able to blend into a crowd, able to have the resources to take time off and wander through the streets. A lot of discussion of the urban flaneur ignores this and assumes that the walker of the city has somehow bracketed their personality, is somehow invisible, is somehow an everyman. We have to remember that uh, it's only the privileged few who could read a city like a book. It's only the privileged few who could see the city as a work of art. But at least from the early 18th century, uh, people did see the city as a work of art. Mr. Spectator, the eponymous mascot of the early news sheet, The Spectator, would move through the London streets, silent and knowing, looking at the different kinds of people who he met there and commenting on them in his polite, urbane, and well-fashioned way. And in this way, we see the urban uh, tourist as moving through the different kinds of social circles that you see in the city. In the same way as the country tourist moves backward in time, the urban tourist moves laterally through social class and other kinds of designation by going into the spaces of the city that uh, he is not used to go. The urban tourist views another kind of life as Jacob Rees called it, how the other half lives. These places where fellow Londoners, fellow uh, Bostonians, fellow New Yorkers live, we can sample their culture like we can the foreign. Increasingly in the 19th century, there's the view of the city not simply as this urbane place where you might go to uh, you know, view the vast variety of human activity, but also a place of increasing danger. Not just dirt and disease, but also a place 
where there is increasing amount of sexual crime, where women in particular have to be protected from the openness of the city. The key moment here is, of course, the sexual panics in the 1870s and 1880s around prostitution and around Jack the Ripper, where the city itself became framed as a place where due to the mixing of different social classes, women, particularly like the good women, the middle class and upper class women who were virginal and kind and not promiscuous at all, might be subject to the dangerous and polluting culture of the lower classes. And there was a solution to this. And the solution uh, is something that you probably are very familiar with, the suburb. The same sort of technology of trains and coaches and even cars and improved transport that helped to reframe how people viewed the country and the city in the later 19th century helped to change where the house is, where the site of the middle-class family actually is. And as they are increasingly able to do so, the family moves out of the city to avoid the dangers, yet close enough to be able to make excursions into the city to sample its delights. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, do all those things to the media that you consume on the internet that you like. Um, I'm sorry for the weird recording quality today. I realized halfway through that my uh, recording equipment wasn't turned on and I was using my inbuilt microphone. Um, thanks very much to Jonathan Lear, who made the music, and to Duncan Barton, who made the image. I'll be back to you guys tomorrow or this afternoon um, when I'm going to talk about time. And that will be probably the last episode of this